Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Shahin Dashgart, Professor of Earth Sciences at Simon Fraser University. His present research is focused on convergent margin basins and fluvial tidal strata through time and space. We'll be discussing tropical cyclone deposits with some references to the research paper by Shahin Dashgart et al. titled Tropical Cyclone Deposits in the Pliocene-Taiwan Strait, Processes, Examples, and Conceptual Model. Some highlights include discussing how the winds and rains affect the rock record. We're rocking out today with Shahin Dashgard. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi, Shaheen, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We've done a lot of work on tropical cyclones over the last seven years and published a series of five papers. So to start off, what are tropical cyclones and how are they different than hurricanes, typhoons, tropical depressions, and tropical storms? Yeah, I'll start by defining a tropical cyclone. It's a rapidly rotating low-pressure storm system that's really characterized by strong winds and lots of rain. Now, in terms of the names you gave, there's actually two different components to that. First, uh, hurricanes and typhoons are both names that are given to tropical cyclones in different parts of the world. So a hurricane is a tropical cyclone that occurs in the Atlantic and Northeast Pacific. And a typhoon is a tropical cyclone that occurs in the Northwest Pacific. Now, when we talk about tropical depressions and tropical storms, and then as well, category one, two, three, four, and five storms, we're actually talking about differences in the intensity of the storm. Uh, and it's really characterized by the strength of the winds within that rotating storm system. So a tropical depression is the weakest of those. And that's usually when winds are sustained at between zero and 60 kilometers an hour. And a tropical storm is one where the winds are sustained between about 60 and 120 kilometers an hour. And then all of the category one and above are for stronger winds than that. So really, if you think about a car driving on a highway, tropical storms would be kind of, you know, highway speed. Yeah, that, that's, that's the, the best analogy for it. And if you look at something like a, a tornado, it's very similar to a tropical cyclone, with the exception that it's a much tighter uh, spinning of the rotation of the winds. That makes sense. So some of the research you did was in Taiwan. Why did you choose that as your study area? And how often do they have tropical cyclones? Yeah, the, uh, the, the choice of Taiwan for studying tropical cyclones is actually by accident. I went there on a field trip in 2017. And uh, while I was there, we, did a, we went around to look at a number of the, the outcrops. And, and there really was a clear cyclicity in those rocks. And so I initiated this discussion around whether looking at cyclicity and, and, and doing studies on those rocks for that particular aspect of them. And that led to a sabbatical stay in 2019. When we really started to look at the rocks in more detail, I realized that there's a lot of deposits within those successions that were kind of outside my realm of what I thought sedimentological expressions of shallow marine strata would be. And that uh, got me looking into the idea of what was actually driving those processes. And, and, it, and it turned out that Taiwan's actually at the very end of what's uh, really Hurricane Alley, like the largest number of tropical cyclones generated on the planet. Taiwan's kind of the terminus of where those storms pass through. So um, they get between about three and four tropical cyclones a year. That's pretty frequent. So when you talk about the storm building, there's a couple of different stages. Uh, first, the storm builds up, 
and then second, the eye passes of the storm. Then the storm wanes. And then fourth, there's the post-storm relaxation. So how are each of these different stages reflected in the sedimentation? Yeah, there's not really one key or particular expression for any single particular stage. And it kind of depends on, on how that storm moves relative to land. So in most cases, uh, or nearly all cases, well, actually in all cases, tropical cyclones build over top of the ocean and then they move towards land. So they, they move from, uh, from an eastern position to a more western position and they curl away from the equator as they move in that direction. Um, now, what happens as they move from over the ocean onto land is that we end up with this very strong uh, uh, weather system moving with it. And so we get strong winds followed by strong precipitation. So in cases where we're moving from the ocean onto land, Earlier stages, stages one and two, are actually an increase in the energy of the storm. And so that usually is represented by erosion on the seafloor. And then as that storm passes and we start to see a waning in that energy, we start to get deposition. So that's stages three and four, and we all start to accumulate our sediments on the seafloor. Now, we will often find that we, uh, there's a lot of mud being deposited in this, on the seafloor post-storm, and that's a function of precipitation happening on land, washing sediment into the ocean basin. Now, things become different when we start to look at the island systems in Southeast Asia because the tropical cyclones move from the ocean over top of the island and then over top of a water body before moving on to the mainland of Asia. And so as a result of that, in these water bodies around the islands, particularly on their western margins, we end up seeing the coincidence of both strong waves and lots of precipitation and sediment runoff occurring together. And so there we actually start to see multiple phases of scouring and deposition occurring on the seafloor during stages two, three, and four. We also start to find that we get both sand and mud being delivered to the shoreline and actually accumulating on the seafloor because of the fact that we do interact the precipitation and runoff with the strong uh, waves in the surrounding uh, ocean basin. So it's very different if you're looking at the eastern side of the island the western side of the island just because the wind speeds are so different and the phases of the two right? yeah it's uh, it's actually a quite a complicated problem that, that having looked at this uh the, these deposits in taiwan you come to realize that there's a lot more expressions of tropical cyclones than what we we've been led to believe so we've always uh, assumed that a tropical cyclone will have this expression based on a lot of the work that was done through the 70s and 80s in the um in the gulf of mexico but that's really just one example of what these deposits would look like. Now, in terms of total amount of sediment delivered to the ocean, the Southeast Asian islands actually are the largest per, uh, per capita sediment uh, volume that is delivered to the oceans anywhere on the planet. And Taiwan actually delivers more sediment to the ocean than the continental United States. So we're dealing with massive amounts of sediment being delivered to the ocean. And a lot of that is being driven by tropical cyclones and the erosion of, of what's happening on land. So we need to start to think about, or at least this is getting me to start to think about, uh, what different expressions can we have of tropical cyclones in different parts of the world? And taking into account the fact that it's a, it's a function of the intensity of the storm, the amount of precipitation associated with it, the shape of the shoreline, and the proximity of river systems and the length of the river systems relative to, the, to the, the surrounding ocean basins. All of that is going to impact what we actually see preserved in the rock record. So speaking of the rock record, you've generated a list of eight characteristics that tropical cyclone beds can display. 
and you suggested that if three or more of these are present, then there's a high probability of it being a tropical cyclone deposition. So what are some of these characteristics? Yeah, so the paper you're referring to with the eight characteristics was really done uh, based around the Taiwan Strait uh, as an analog. And that was put out there because they are very, very different than what's been talked about in the past. So I think I'd divide those characteristics into what we see in almost all tropical cyclone beds and those that we see in, say, the Taiwan Strait and what I would anticipate seeing in a lot of the deposits on the western margins of the islands throughout Southeast Asia. So for most, all tropical cyclone beds, they, they all have an inter, a basal scour surface and typically a coarser grain size than the sediment that's being deposited below and above the bed. And that's reflecting the fact that these are very high energy storms um, and that they're, they're moving sediment on the seafloor, re-suspending that sediment and, and transporting it and depositing it. So we see that difference in grain size being expressed as well as the scouring of the seafloor. The second aspect that we see in a lot of tropical cyclone beds is the preservation of oscillatory structures, and that's a wave-generated structure. And the typical one that uh, we often think of is hummocky cross-stratification. And so as that storm waves, we start to pick up these constructional bed forms, so bed forms that actually accumulate on the seafloor without any erosion of the base, that usually where the, the bed form itself mimics the shape of the, the waves at the surface of the ocean. And so those are, are typical of uh, tropical cyclones. Um, the third component, we see mud deposition occurring post-storm. And that's a function of the fact that a lot of mud is delivered to the ocean after the, um, the storm has moved on land. And we've had a lot of precipitation washing sediment off the, uh, the land surface. And then the beds, almost all tropical cyclone beds, do not have any bioturbation within the bed. Um, now, there can be bioturbation in the bed, but it almost all occurs at the top of the bed and then extends down into the underlying sediment. And that's because the storms tend to kill all of the animals living in the seafloor. And so we don't actually get the uh, bioturbation within them. Now, one of the, the things, the eight uh, things that we talked about in that paper around the Taiwan Strait, there's a number of key characteristics that are different in these uh, narrow seaways and particularly in straits. And one of them is the fact that we have this, uh, the trough cross stratification that is showing orientations that are parallel to the shoreline, both north and south. And that's a function of the fact that that's a narrow seaway and the, the waves uh, within the strait are, are driving currents that are forcing the sediment to move as bed forms parallel to the shoreline. We see a lot of mud or organic material deposited with the sand within the bed. So sand and mud are being interbedded within the sediment itself. Um, and some of those mud beds are actually being re ripped up and turned into rip-up class within the bed. And that's a function of the coincident high-energy discharge uh, from the rivers uh, as they swell with precipitation and the fact that we have these strong currents moving in the Taiwan Strait. And then the third thing that we're, we're, we observed in a lot of these beds, and I'm not sure if this is applicable globally, but definitely something we saw in Taiwan, is a large amount of uh, poorly sorted shell hash in disarticulated shells of, of bivalves. And that's really um, really the evidence of the poor souls that lost their lives as those currents eroded the seafloor and, and those shells were broken up by currents within the strait. Yeah, it's very visual when you describe it because you can really see how all those different sedimentary structures come from the way that they were deposited. You know, whether it's the waves oscillating or the sand being deposited so quickly that there's no critters, no bioturbation. So um, I like the way you explain it, you know, really thinking about the process with how it gets there. 
So speaking of the process a little bit more, um, one of the things that you did mention is that the hummocky cross stratification alone, it doesn't necessarily mean that the sediment was deposited by tropical cyclones. So one example of this is the Denvegan. So this leads us back to a storm versus a tropical cyclone. What differences would you see in the rock record? Well, the actual answer to that is not really possible to tell the difference between hummocky cross stratification uh, generated by storms and tropical cyclones because the deposits look exactly the same. Now, you mentioned the Dumbagan. That's actually situated in the Western Canada sedimentary basin. But at that time, uh, the, Western, the, the WCSB was actually situated north of the Arctic Circle, particularly where the Dumbagan was being uh, deposited, and was also situated in the shallow interior seaway. And that is a, a location that's highly improbable that we would have generated tropical cyclones. Because what we look at today, the, the t- tropical cyclones are generated within, within about 30, 20 to 30 degrees of the equator. And they all generate over deep ocean and then move on to land from there. So it's, it's highly improbable that we had tropical cyclones affecting uh, deposition in the Western Canada Basin. However, the products that we see associated with tropical cyclones is very, very similar to the products we see with storms. And so we can't go in and tell whether one, we had one or the other, not uh, from those particular uh, criteria, because they're, they're universal to all storms where we see strong waves and um, mud deposition occurring because of high precipitation and uh, discharge into the surrounding both basins. So at the end of the day, do you think it really matters whether or not it's storm or a tropical cyclone? Would it wind up being a bigger magnitude of sediment dumped with one being higher speed or would it be irrelevant? That's a great question. And I'm not sure I've got a great answer. I would say that the amount of sediment that we accumulate in the shallow marine realm as a function of storms and or tropical cyclones will depend on how close that deposit is to a river system. So from some of the work we've seen in in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, even during very, very large storms, we have very, very thin uh, sand deposits being deposited into even up to 35 meters water down. So there's not a thick deposit that records that storm. However, you can go into another environment where you have a a weaker storm, but it's uh, in close proximity to a river, and you might have a much thicker deposit there simply because you're moving more sediment into that part of the system. Um, And and there's more sediment available to be retransported and redeposited. So whether there's a, a difference between a storm and a tropical cyclone in terms of how we might interpret the rock record, uh, not necessarily. I think it actually becomes more of a function of trying to understand how, how climates have changed over the last uh, 10, 20, 50 million years and looking for the expressions of tropical cyclones in parts of the world where we have a fairly good sense that those deposits are very likely to be tropical cyclones. And I, I'll bring us back to the Taiwan Strait in this case, where the storms that occur in the winter are not strong enough to actually generate hummocky cross stratification. And so all of these beds where we see these, these characteristics of PCs are associated with tropical cyclones. And so we can actually then look at the change in the intensity of those sorts of storms over time because we have that, uh, that being expressed and preserved in the rock record. Yeah, so knowing the geography of the area, the latitude and what the rivers are for the nearest source are really integral to your interpretation here. 100%. 
So the daily precipitation, the river discharge, and wave heights are often measured during the tropical cyclones. How do these three measurements relate to each other? Yeah, this is uh, this comes down to the again to the morphology, the geography of the environment in which you're actually accumulating those sediments. So if you're dealing with an open ocean setting, the strong winds are are typically going to precede the high precipitation. And so if you imagine a tropical cyclone, a rotating storm moving across the ocean, you're going to have precipitation happening in the heart of the storm. You're going to have winds picking up and, and increasing wave heights uh, in advance of the storm and through the heart of it. But when we actually start to get the precipitation on land, where it's going to have an impact on how much sediment is delivered to the ocean, um, it's going to occur after those strong winds have moved through. So we, we, we end up in the situation where the, the two are occurring simultaneously in the storm, but their expressions geologically are separate because of the fact of, of how that storm is moving uh, relative to the shoreline. In Taiwan, the river discharge is, is basically resulting from this massive amount of water being dumped in the, in the river catchments, and, and that's actually happening on land. And so the strong winds are, are occurring in the strait as the storm is advancing, but precipitation is happening on land directly below the storm. And so the runoff in the rivers actually co is coincident with the strong waves in the adjacent basin. So we actually see those two things happening together. So they are related to each other because they all relate to the storm itself, but their expressions are substantially different based on the morphology of the geography of the environment that they're actually impacting. So speaking of the high precipitation that happens on the land, it can lead to hyperpycnal flows on the sea floor, which you just mentioned them happening at the same time, and that can lead to some erosion. So is this why we see erosive surfaces at the base of the tropical cyclones, and would it be a similar concept for other storms? Uh, well, there's two different components to that. So hyperpycnal discharge is typically, uh, it, it's where you actually have a, a very high suspended sediment load in the sediment. You usually need to be about, above about 40 grams per liter of suspended sediment in, in, in your freshwater discharge. And that will actually increase the density enough that the flow will move at the base of the ocean below the actual uh, seawater. So in a case like that, hyperpycnal deposits typically either show a graded appearance, so uh, inverse graded or inverse to normal graded or, or, or normal graded appearance. As we see these flows accelerating and decelerating, and we can get multiple expressions of that. And because they are high energy flows and they're hugging the seafloor, they will erode the bed um, as, as they move across uh, and until they're finally deposited. Now, in the case of hummocky cross stratification, that erosion is actually happening as the storm waves are activating and moving along the seafloor. So the base of the hummocky cross stratification is actually a function of wave erosion of the seafloor upon which sand is deposited. We can then get hyperpycnal flows actually eroding the top of the sand beds. So we're having multiple phases of erosion happening in those environments. And the same thing happens in storms if they're strong enough. If they can generate the hummocky cross stratification, if we then get the post-depositional uh, discharge of, 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 from rivers, those will actually generate hyperpycnal flows. We can actually then get the same sort of arrangement of, of beds and scours in, the, in those deposits. So the erosive surfaces really stack on top of each other here. They do. With sediment in between it, of course. Yeah, well, and, and one thing that's, uh, that I should also point out is it's not uncommon within a, a succession of hummocky cross-stratified sandstone to see multiple internal scour events 
as the way as the winds and the waves and the and the currents in that underneath that storm actually change, they wax and they wane in their intensity, and you can get uh, down cutting and deposition such that the, the preserved deposit will actually have multiple um, multiple packages of of, of stratified sediment that are actually cross cutting each. You know, we talked a little bit about Taiwan. Uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, the tropical cyclones start in the sea and then move on to the land. And in Taiwan, as you mentioned, they go over the land. So you generated a model that represents the first attempt to characterize the process product relations for tropical cyclones in a strait. What did this model look like? Yeah, so the, the eight characteristics that we defined is, is really the, the summary of what we were talking of, what we put forward for this model. And, and it really comes down to the fact that it's it's a function of the geometry of the strait. So they tend to be quite narrow and they tend to, to be um, elongate. Uh, they typically are associated with strong currents moving within there. And so the model we put forward is, is saying, well, if you take a rotating storm and you move it to over top of a linear um, feature, you're going to see a much different uh, expression of beds within there. And so, uh, and as well, because straits have land on either side of them, um, if that tropical cyclone moves over top of it, we're going to see that interaction of the increased precipitation within the strait itself. So um, like we've discussed a, a number of times here, I'd say multiple scour surfaces, the lower basal scour surface, uh, trough cross stratification paralleling the shoreline, representing the fact that we're amplifying currents up and down the strait. A lot of interbedded muds and mud and organics, representing the fact that sediment is going to be discharged from the adjacent land areas into the strait um, because the storm is passing over those um, those land surfaces before entering the strait itself will all actually be reflected in there. And we typically see uh, oscillatory generated structures like hummocky cross stratification towards the top of the bed as those currents start to die down um, as the storm passes and we have residual waves acting in the system itself. So that's kind of what we envision for the for, the, for those environments. Um, usually the river catchments draining into a strait are quite um, quite short. Uh, well, it can be short, not necessarily short, but if they are, then we see a lot of terrestrially derived material uh, being delivered to the strait during those storms as well. And that should be expressed in the sediment too. Yeah, the organics and the terrestrial derived sediments would be very unique when there's the island there versus when there's not an island there. Yeah. So if the tropical storm is not expressed as easily identifiable storm beds, what else could you use to assess these shallow marine deposits? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of looking at organic material, and I perhaps alluded to that just a bit earlier. So looking at the carbon-13 to carbon-12 ratio, or, or what we often refer to as the delta C13 of organic matter ratio uh, value, um, and I, I use that because there's a significant difference in the D13C or delta-13C ratio uh, or value of organically, organic material derived from terrestrial sources versus organic material that comes from marine sources. And so if we're seeing a lot of input of organic material from terrestrial sources, we should see a much lower D13C value. And the dominant um, signature are C, what we refer to as C3 plants, so things like trees, woody plant material, which has a minus 27 uh, D13C value on, on average, um, versus, say, marine foramina, uh, plankton and foraminifera, which are typically more in the minus 21 uh, range. And so we can look at the changes in the 
delta 13C value of the organic material in beds to actually get a sense as to how much of the sediment is being delivered from land. So in some of the work we've done on looking at delta C13 values uh, in the Taiwan Strait, we actually saw that about 100% of that material is coming from land. And so even though when we logged the outcrop, it looked like those deposits were not um, completely dominated by storm deposits, it's quite clear that the sedimentation is. And just to put that into perspective or to contrast that with a Canadian example, um, we did some similar work on the Fraser River Delta, which is the largest river on Canada's west coast, and looking at mud deposits in the intertidal zone and the upper part of the delta front, we're finding that 50 to 70% of the organic material is actually marine. So we're getting a much lower, a much higher carbon signal, indicating a much higher uh, contribution of um, marine organics to that system, even though it's one of our largest delta systems uh, in the country. So is that changing your interpretation uh, at the Fraser River to be a different type of delta? No, not at all. I think it just really reflects the fact that the, the, the tropical cyclones, where they are having an impact on sedimentation, not just have a little bit of an impact, they actually dominate. They completely dominate sedimentation in those systems. And what we're seeing in the, in the Strait of Georgia with the Fraser River Delta is probably more typical of, of coastal systems, where we still see the significant contribution of organic material from the marine realm because we are in a system that is green in nature and there's lots of oxygen in the system and lots of food. It sounds like you've looked at a lot of different areas already for the tropical cyclones. What's next in the research? Yeah, well, we're going back to what we initially started with, and that was trying to look at the cyclicity in the rock record. Now, now we have a good sense of what the expressions are, both geochemically and sedimentologically, of tropical cyclones. Uh, what we're doing now, is in, in, especially in Taiwan, is going back to these uh, strata and actually looking at uh, both the Pliocene rocks that we described and, uh, and Pleistocene rocks, and then comparing them to, um, to paleo temperature curves, so paleoclimate curves. And so there's a lot of work that, where they've, they've generated um, uh, paleo temperature curves based on delta 18O. So the delta content of oxygen 18 versus oxygen 16, so that ratio, and looking at the that on for benthic foraminifera to then reconstruct what the paleo water temperature would have been. And we're going to look at variations in paleo water temperature uh, compared to what we're seeing in the sedimentological uh, succession. So what are we seeing in that, in that record? And trying to get a handle on what were the changes in tropical cyclone intensity and frequency as a function of paleo temperature. So can we actually start to predict when we would have had more and stronger tropical cyclones uh, during warmer periods versus cooler periods? How would that differ versus recent history when uh, climate was very much controlled by changes in Earth's uh, orbital shape, so eccentricity, versus changes in the tilt of the Earth, which is obliquity, and trying to get a better handle on, on what sorts of things are driving changes in the intensity of, of these uh, storms and how they're being expressed in the rock record. And then hopefully, at some point, being able to feed that data into uh, models for future Earth and trying to understand what's going to happen sedimentation-wise as we move into higher carbon dioxide contents in the atmosphere. It's so important to, you know, you're taking this data and you're using it to predict the past, but you're also using it to predict the future. Because a lot of these areas do have relatively large populations that could be affected by a storm of this magnitude. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to give you uh, some perspective, uh, Vancouver Island um, and, and Taiwan are roughly the same size, uh, but whereas Vancouver Island has about 750,000 residents, uh, Taiwan has about 23 million. So you can imagine just how many people are impacted by these storms on a regular basis. And that's not even considering the Philippines, which are getting similar numbers of storms uh, just south of Taiwan. Uh, well, this has all been really interesting and exciting research. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, well, thank you. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.